Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to be looking at this morning. And take, make sure you are, are looking at it in, on, in your Bibles or on your Bible on your iPod or some MP3 device or some electronic device that you have with you today. Uh, whatever it is, look at it. Look at the text yourself so you can see what it says. This morning we're looking at the strong warning that comes of, uh, about four or five times in the book of Hebrews, this is the first of the warnings that he gives. It's almost a parenthesis based on what he said before, before he says the next thing. But he wants to give it to these hearers, these recipients of this letter, so they can, I would say this, they can be assured that they're heading in the right direction and they're believing the right things. We just came out of a section of Scripture that spoke of the excelling greatness of God's Son and that Christ has inherited a more excellent name than the angels. He receives their worship. He uses them as messengers and servants. Jesus is anointed above all of them, above all others. He is God the Creator, God eternal, God unchangeable. He he is given the highest place in the universe. That should be our view of Christ. And that view should never be diminished by anything, any teaching or anyone. We cannot move from having a high view of God, a high view of Christ, and a total sufficiency in God's Word, that what God's Word says is true, and that it is worthy to be believed. And it is worthy to develop deep convictions in your heart so you can stand firm. So if persecution and suffering and the change change in our world the way we know it now happens, it's not going to move us around too much. We're going to quickly get back in balance and continue to march evaluate our situation, and do what we have to do to continue to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ. So all of this was given in Hebrews to inform his readers that Christ, the object of God's final revelation, is vastly superior to all spiritual angelic beings and all others. Now the author pauses, and injects a word of strong warning. Why does he do that? He understands that his readers are troubled by the, by the possibility of being ostracized, troubled by impending suffering, or maybe suffering they've already been, uh, go, have gone through, or even the loss of their life for believing in Jesus Christ. He senses that his readers are discouraged and are being tempted to be be pulled back from their commitment to Christ. Have you ever been there? Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever felt that, being around family and friends, that somehow, in some way, 
you were a little bit ashamed of being a Christian? A little bit ashamed of knowing Christ as your Savior? And kind of like stepped back a bit? And that's nothing compared to what they were going through in this epistle as he's writing it to them, as he's preaching it to them. So they're at a crisis point. And we, in our lives, may come from time to time, move in and out at different levels in this crisis point. But at this crisis point, there's great danger. I don't believe it is danger, and and I'm going to deal with the issue maybe right now, that whether a person could lose their salvation, because people, when we get to chapter 6 and 10, people start using those passages to say, People can have a salvation and lose it. I'm going, to, I'm going to start with it now and then work through it as we work through the book that I believe that the author of Hebrews is confident that his readers would endure and would remain faithful to their commitment to Christ till the end. How do I know that? Well, how, why do I believe that? Well, look over the page to chapter 3 and verse 6 because he says this about his readers. He says, but Christ, this is 3.6, was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, he's using we there, including himself, the writer, and those who are listening, we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. So these are believers, mostly Jewish believers, right? And he's telling them, listen, this trouble has come, but don't. Don't lose your grip. Hold firm to the end. Because what you have is real. Your salvation is real. But he is careful to warn them that had been exposed to the truth of the gospel and the supremacy of Christ's saving work, just as you are being exposed to it from the word of God, that up until that point, in which he was writing this epistle, they had given evidence of a true Christian experience. They've experienced what it means to be a believer. They've they've had the Holy Spirit. They've had the Word of God. They've had an opportunity to witness. They've had an opportunity to see and to hear what God has been doing. So he admonishes them to continue in the faith and obedience. Continuing in the faith and having obedience is key to the Christian life. He's, again, talking about the perseverance of the saints. What God began in you, he will continue in you. Now, again, look at over chapter 3, look at verse number 14. He again says this, For we have become partakers of Christ. We have. What? Become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. So he's talking about their He's talking about perseverance, not only just a profession of faith, not only just a a few Sunday school uh, attendances, but being relentless on continuing, not listening to your flesh, not listening to your feelings. Often we have to do that, but just following the truth and being faithful. And when you do that, God strengthens you. He makes you firm in the faith. He gives you the ability to see further than anyone else, farther than anyone else, however you want to say it. But when there is no perseverance, when somebody makes a profession of faith and gives no indication 
that from that point there's any fruit of the Spirit in their life, well then, at that point, maybe they didn't have faith in the beginning and didn't have real salvation in the beginning. So what they need and what we would need if we were found in a situation like this is we would need a strong exhortation, a spiritual kick in the pants. We would need some strong words of warning. Why? So it would help us to see clearly again. So it would give the needed assurance that we all need to press on in our commitment to Christ and give greater attention to the person of the Son, to the person of Jesus Christ, to keep our eyes upon Him. So, with that, let's look at our text this morning, and let's look at the exhortation, and let's take seriously the exhortation and the warning for ourselves as we look at this passage of Scripture. And here is the exhortation, chapter 2, verse 1. It says, for this reason, your Bibles may say, therefore, whatever has gone before, now he's saying, listen, because you know these things about the Son, well, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. There's the exhortation. Pay attention to what you have heard, what you have heard, in view of the preeminent status of the Son. God having spoken in His Son about His saving purpose that came to full expression in Him and that the Son's message should have a paramount claim upon our attention, upon our belief, upon our our obedience, and upon our continuing in the faith. That's the exhortation. So, you see, when one stops listening to God's Word, they are in great danger of misunderstanding God's Word. Now, what I'm saying here is not that you're not present, but you're not listening. You're not listening to what it says. You're not applying it to yourself. You're not applying it to your life. There is great danger when you are present, but not paying attention to God's Word. Not anybody's Word. God's Word. And you are truly allowing it to sink into your mind and to get down to your heart and move your emotions and move your understanding and move your will. That's what the Bible means when it's talking about paying closer attention to what has been already written and given to us. What will we will what we will misunderstand if we don't pay attention is God's so great salvation that was given by the Father through the Son. See, do we understand the salvation that has been given? I do know this, that there are things that always resonate with people who think that they are somehow outside the message contained in the Word of God, and it doesn't really apply to them. You may like to be read the Bible, and it has something to do with you and your interest in it, but it really doesn't apply to me. 
It really has nothing to do with my life. So they begin to think, though, that they don't need anything, that it doesn't apply to them. They begin to resent the fact that the implication of the gospel for them is that they're being condemned by God for their sin and are under his wrath where they think, I don't think there's anything wrong with my life. Or someone who would, who would actually fail to hear the gospel, to hear the truth, to read the word of God, and yet fail to understand what is really written or what they really believe. This has eternal consequences for us. Do we understand the truth? So we need to take heed that we do not develop a hearing problem and stop truly listening to God's word. Now, the writer of Hebrews admonishes his audience again when I get there. Look at over to chapter 5 of Hebrews in verse 11 through 14 because obviously they have developed, a group of them are developing that problem and he says to them, listen, concern, Hebrews 5, verse 11, concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. In other words, listen, I have something real hard to explain to you, but I can't go deeper in my explanation of the truth because you haven't been paying attention to the basics. You have been looking at what the Bible has been saying about the basics about where all the Old Testament types and pictures and stories have been pointing. So listen, if you don't get the basics, how can I teach you more of the Word of God? And if you look at verse 12, verse 11 says they've been dull of hearing. Verse 12, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have become again for someone to teach you, uh, need again for someone to teach you, you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have become have come to need milk and not solid food. Uh, Milk is for babies, right? It's time to grow up, he is saying to them. It's time to grow up. Look at verse 13. For everyone who partakes only in milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. For he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice they have sense have uh, their senses trained to discern good and evil. In other words, they've been paying attention. They have been applying in their lives the things that they have been learning. They loathe the fact that somehow they reek of being a baby. They don't want to be a baby. They want to be mature. That's why the Bible talks about babes in Christ, young men in Christ, 1 John, right, who are are able to take the word of God and fight against Satan when he he, he, uh, smashes them with, uh, with unbiblical Uh, with twist of lies and truth together, they're able to discern all that and fight against him. And then spiritual fathers who've learned to mature and walk steady in the faith and become firm in the faith. He wants them to grow. He's pushing them not to be satisfied where they're at, especially in the midst of persecution and troubles where it could be the point where you throw in the towel and say, hey, I didn't sign on for this. I didn't realize the Christian life was like this. So here's the exhortation in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 1. Pay much closer attention. The word means to turn one's mind to. Believers are to 
believe and cling to God's message that Christ Jesus is so much better than any previous revelation that has been given that our minds should give him the closest attention, pay more attention to Christ, to the Son, to all that's wrapped up in him on what he's done. Now, it also means this, all the more attention to what? Let me ask another question. Well, to all the more attention than the Old Testament revelation had given about him. Even though it was grand revelation, and that's how God laid it out, that's only part of the revelation of God. Remember what happened in chapter 1 of Hebrews, verse number 1, what it says again, God, after he spoke long ages to the fathers in the prophets in many portions, in many ways, verse 2, in these last days he's spoken to us in his Son. So his Son becomes the final revelation, so... He's saying, listen more closely to God's message mediated via the Son. He becomes the central point of our paying attention. Now, why is this? Well, because with the exhortation comes a warning. And what's the warning? Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Here's the warning in verse number 1. So that you do not drift away from it. So you don't drift away. So you don't flow past it. So you don't drift past it. It gives the sense here of a gradual, perhaps even at first, an indiscernible movement away from something. You don't even know it's happening. But you got involved with this and that. You're, you're, you're paying attention to this and that. And you're paying attention to all other things, but except you're not paying attention to the eternal things that God's given us. And so believers can get wrapped up in this. They can get pulled away. They can drift away. You know, one time they were faithful to the word of God, to church, to attendance, to study, and and now now they're they're, they're kind of like coasting on what they know. He's saying, no, 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 don't do that because you're in great danger from slipping away from all of it. See, it could be spiritual apathy, it could be spiritual regression. It could be uh, spiritually you're naive uh, to the truth, especially concerning what you believe about the sun. Now, anybody knows anything about working out, working out, and if you're pumping the steel or if you're doing treadmills, man, you're, when you do that, your muscles are firm and strong, right? But just take off a few months, and it all starts t- turning jello. Right? Like, what happened to that muscle I had there? Well, it starts turning soft. Well, you don't think that happens spiritually? If we're going to keep firm muscles, we've got to discipline ourselves to go to the gym, right? Or to work out on however way you do, walking, whatever you do, to keep the muscles strong and firm, to kind of hedge against gravity somewhat as you grow older, right? And, and we need to do that spiritually. So we can't, there's no room to step off and take a break. We don't have that privilege. We don't have that luxury to do that. We don't. And he's warning them. Listen, the metaphor in mind here seems to be that of allowing the current to carry one away from a fixed point through carelessness and unconcern 
and instead of keeping a firm grip on the truth or falling, failing to maintain a, a secure anchorage in the truth, they begin to drift away from what they even already know. I don't want that. The warning is don't slip away from the teaching concerning Messiah's future deliverance and kingdom and have a biblical view of God's Son and salvation that He has accomplished and He offers to you. And if you've received it, it is yours. What do you think? Just because you became a Christian, you know everything? That your, your, under, your journey to understand God has ended? What do you... We can't, that's like foolishness. God is so vast and large and big, and there's so much to know about him. And what he has given us is contained in one book we can carry around. Yeah, 66 books, but God's given it to us. But you know what? The Bible is a big book, and there's a lot to know about God. So you know what? Don't ever think that you can sit by on the sidelines and take a break. Can't. Why? Because the warning is, I don't want to drift away from what I already got. I want to keep it. I want to keep the spiritual muscles strong and firm. So when somebody comes to attack me spiritually, when Satan comes with his fiery missiles, I'm going to be able to stand. If suffering comes into my life, if loss of health comes into my life, if some family problem comes into my life, if everything changes and the bottom drops out, I'm not going to lose my firm faith and grip on Christ. That's the point. That's where he wants his readers to go. So see, it's a strong warning. And, well, he hasn't even made his case yet. Wait till he makes his case. You'll find that the, it's a blow between the eyes. But it's a needed one. It's a needed one. Let's see the motivation he gives them to keep the warning and the exhortation. Verse number two, he begins the motivation to keep the warning and the exhortation. And look what he says in verse number 2. And if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable. Now let me stop right there because I have to give you some, some information about one particular word here. It is the word in verse number 2. Well, let me just say this. This motivation to take serious the exhortation and warning comes from past Jewish history within the Sinai wilderness community. That's where he's drawing it from. But I want you to notice this tiny word in verse 2, for if. See that word if? Now, that word if could either be taken one or two ways. And that's what you have to decide when you interpret Scripture. It could be a cause and effect way. Remember, when if, if something happens, then. It's an F and a then. That's a cause and effect. It's like uh, if you put your hand in the fire, then you will what? Get burned, right? So if I do something, I will get burned. There's, there's, a, uh, there's the, um, the cause, right? And then there is the effect. And then there's another way of looking at this passage of Scripture or this word if, and it's what they called the evidence inference. In other words, that he is developing evidence so we can make an inference on something. Another, let me put it like this. If she has a ring, if she has a ring on her left hand, then she is married, right? Now, do I know she's married? 
because she has, well, it's an, I'm inferring by good evidence that most women who have a ring on their left hand, and there's a, there's a shiny one along with it, and all the other things that go with a wedding band, we could assume, I'm inferring, and most of the time, 99% of the time, you will be right. Right? So the inference is good. Now, this is what he does. I believe this is the way he uses the if here. That he stacks up the evidence. And then, you know what? The audience can say, then I must infer. This is true. This is true. Now, let's see if there is any evidence that would bring one to make an inference based on the evidence. And so, verse number 2 it says this, let me read it. And if the words spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, let me stop at the comma. So he is saying here, just for well, just for your information, also there is another thing going on here that a Jewish interpreters really respect 13 rules of interpretation. One of these rules is called a Cal Wahomer. And this rule states that what applies in a less important case, a past era, the past wilderness experience, right, is will certainly apply to a more important case, the present era, the era in which God's full revelation is being spoken through the Son, Right? So that is going on there. So the argument would be, it's the, it is the uh, argument where the lesser to the greater argument, those who are aware of grammar, uh, this is also called the a fortiori. Uh, and really, a simple way of saying it is, remember when Jesus uh, said in Matthew chapter 10, are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet one of them will fall to the ground, not one of them will fall to the ground without, uh, apart from your father. The father knows whenever sparrow even falls to the ground. And then he says this, but the very hairs of your head are numbered, so do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. So he is saying there, if the sparrows are valuable, how much do you think you're valuable it's created in the image of God. It's the lesser to the greater argument, right? That's going on here too. In other words, the argument in Scripture is if God was steadfast on how he held people responsible to the law that was mediated by angels, if God was firm that when in the past... What he spoke through angels proved unalterable. How much more will it be? His message given through the Son. That you think that you can get away with something just because we're in the age of mercy and grace? That somehow God's justice doesn't mean anything and that he's laid it aside and there's a difference between how God acted in the Old Testament and how Jesus acts in the Gospels? He is the same God He's already proven that in Scripture. So, now, what do we see? That Moses was given 
living words, the law for the people to live by, mediated by angels. Now, let's take a little, uh, let's look at, go back to Acts for a minute. Just a few passages in Acts. And I want you to see where the Bible refers to angels mediating truth to God's people. I want you to follow this because this is some complicated stuff, but it's really basically simple. He's making one point. That's what he's making, one point. But he's building an argument. He's building the evidence. That is what he's going to do. Look at Acts chapter 7, verse 38. It says, this is the one. He's talking about Moses. Acts 7, verse 38. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness. Look at it. Together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai, who was with our fathers and received living oracles passed on to you. Now, look at, move down to verse 53 of Acts 7. Now, I want you to see what the Sinai community did with the law they received. Right? Were they privileged people to receive the law of God when none of the other nations received it? Yes. Look at, look at verse 53 of Acts. You received the law as ordained by angels, and yet what? What does it say? And yet you did not keep it. You did not keep it. Now, did, does God overlook it? If you go back to the Old Testament, does God overlook when they didn't keep his word? Say, they received in the Old Testament the binding law at Mount Sinai through angelic beings, and they refused to pay attention. And they slipped away, and they lost sight of what God was saying, and they just plain forgot. Now remember that under the Mosaic system, what was built into it? Blessing for obedience and cursing for what? disobedience you find all that in deuteronomy 28 through 30 but we're not going to go there this morning disobedience to the law brought a just penalty god clearly wrote in the old testament if you do this and you break this truth that i'm communicating to you you will serve a just penalty for that crime for that offense Right? That's definitely going to take place, and that's what you find in the Old Testament. God never negotiated his law. He never negotiated with anybody about his law. And that's why his law is written in stone. It doesn't change. Now, thinking of that, why then the law? Well, Paul answers that question in Galatians. Without turning there, it says this. The law was added because of transgressions. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise has been made. Now, who's the seed that would come according to the promise that had been made? Jesus. Right? So the law was given, right, because of the people's transgressions. Now, what is transgressions? Transgression is a violation of what God said, a violation of the law, right? And then what's disobedience? Disobedience 
is basically in your heart and in your will a refusal to obey what God had already said. All right, now look back at Hebrews chapter 2 again, and I want you to notice what is written, and then we'll stack up some evidence. It says in verse 2, For if the words spoken through angels proved unalterable, every, see that word there? Every transgression, every violation of the Lord, and disobedience, a refusal to listen, received a just penalty. Now we see there that God's not fudging on anything. Now just for your information, I have many passages, but I just want to look at a couple of them. One of them is found in Numbers chapter 16, and we'll look at verse 26. Numbers chapter 16, verse 26. But before I get there, while you're turning there, I want to give you some examples from the Old Testament Sinai community that God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. They went into the wilderness wilderness wanderings and God promised them a land flow, flowing with milk and honey that's the basic flow they came out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness they wandered there for 40 years God blessed them there he built the, he gave them the tabernacle there he gave them the law there he gave them uh, the presence of God and they saw the presence of God there he gave them community there he made them like no other nation on earth right there in the wilderness and yet how did the people respond well In Exodus, they were punished for idolatry. Remember, they made the golden calf, and God punished them right on the spot. Later on, when God developed the priesthood, Aaron had two sons, Nadab and Abihu. The two sons decided to offer strange incense on the altar. God never required it, never said to do it. He always says, do it exactly the way I say it. They did it, and God took their lives right on the spot. Kibroth and Hatzavah, they were punished with fire by complaining. Miriam and Aaron, who envied their brother Moses, were struck with leprosy by God. The people were smitten by Amalek for going into battle without asking God whether they should go or not, presuming that God was with them when he wasn't. And they got killed They got slaughtered by them in that battle. Sabbath breakers were stoned to death. Adulterers were stoned to death. Whoever misused the sexual union between a man and a woman was stoned to death. And all these regulations are given by God. And everyone that was broke, God instituted his justice and punished. Without fail, that's what you see in the Old Testament. Now, Come to the passage of Scripture in in Numbers chapter 16, and here is Korah, punished by God, where God opens the earth and swallows them up, and then he punished the 250 that were the instigators of this issue, and he pours out his wrath upon them. Look at verse number 26 of number 16. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing that belongs to them or you will be swept away in their sin. Verse 27, so they got back from around the dwelling of Korah 
Dathan and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the doorway of their tents along with their wives and their sons and their little ones. Look at down to verse number 30. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing and the ground opens up its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. They didn't listen to the Lord. They disobeyed the Lord. Verse 31, And as he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their household and all the men who belonged to Korah and their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive to Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished in the midst of the assembly. Verse 34, and all Israel who were around them fled at their outcry for they said the earth may swallow us up. Verse 35, fire also came, came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. Now, what these people did was they disobeyed what God said to do. And they came up against Moses, God's leader. And God decided to hold justice on them and take them out. That's pretty severe, isn't it? That meaning that God doesn't fudge on what he says. He doesn't compromise or negotiate on what he says. There's another situation, and I don't want you to turn there, but I just want you to listen. It's when the fiery serpents were sent in Numbers 21 among the people for murmuring. Remember that one? And the, they bit the people, and the people were ready to die, and Moses was instructed by God to lift up a bronze serpent in the wilderness. And when the people looked at that serpent, they would be healed. Remember that? Well, Again, what are all those things pointing to? They're pointing to Christ, right? So he is saying, listen, don't get stuck on the elementary things. The beginning things, the beginning revelation. Go on to where that type or that picture or that story is fulfilled. And we know this is one of them. Where it was, it's found in the Gospel of John when, remember, Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, who was supposed to be a teacher in Israel, and he finally said to Nicodemus, after talk about being born again and being born of the Spirit, and then Jesus said this to Nicodemus, and I believe this is where the light bulb went on, and Nicodemus got what, what, what Jesus was saying in John 3, in verse number 13. He says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man... And then he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Ah, I got it. What happened in the Old Testament was that picture that pointed to Christ and Christ became the one who was lifted up, who took the load of sin, that when you look to him and believe by faith, you will have eternal life be forgiven of your sins and made right with him. I get it. I got it. Yes, I got it. Well, is there enough evidence to make an inference 
that if God, if God in the past era didn't fudge on his justice and came down hard on the people who received the word of God mediated by angels, Moses and prophets, then how much more will God hold people responsible who shrink back from Christ and willingly and willfully repudiate the only way of salvation? See, since Jesus is a greater mediator than angels, his message is even more vital than the covenantal message given at Sinai and all the regulations and laws given there for the people to obey. So the message in the Old Testament was cloudy and obscure in all past revelations, but the great salvation that was made in Christ Jesus and became clear in the revelation of the Son is without a doubt God's final message to us. If we neglect that, will God not hold someone responsible for that? Now, we're not done yet. Look at back at Hebrews. Because I just gave you the past mediators, angels, prophets. Now, look at, in Hebrews, the present mediators of God's message. Now, the past mediators of the message of salvation. And now we have the present mediators of God's message. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. He says, how will they escape if we neglect so great salvation? I'm going to come back to that question. After it was first spoken through the Lord. So it says, first of all, the message was first spoken by the Lord himself. After it was first spoken by Jehovah, by the Lord, that he was the one who brings the clear message of all that was revealed in the Old Testament. And then secondly, verse number three of Hebrews 2, it says it was confirmed to us by those who heard. To us were those who received the letters, to those who heard were the apostles, right? They were the, the, the early disciples who got the original account of what happened, and they received it, and then what they proclaimed it, and then they wrote it down. They sealed it in writing. So it was the Lord who first witnessed it and brought the message. It was now the apostles called by God to do this task, to hear it, to write it down accurately, and to give it to those to the church and then notice in verse 4 it also says this god also testified with them with these other two with the lord with the apostles with those who received the message and how did he do it by signs and wonders by various miracles by gifts of the holy spirit according to his own will see all these gifts testified the message of God's Son came from God with power. So in the Gospels and the book of Acts, we read that the apostles, what did they do? They healed the sick, they cast out demons, and they displayed all kinds of other supernatural power that only can come from God, that is substantiated that they were from God, and the message they proclaimed was from God. And it is sealed and set See, God gave them, them the ability to perform miracles in order to bear witness of the truth of the gospel. Right? All right. What am I saying here? 
under the law. Transgression received an adequate punishment. The adequate punishment of the neglecters of the gospel must be a severer punishment than the adequate punishment of the violators of the law. Those in the new era, the era in which the full revelation of God is given, those in the new era who ignore God's message made clear by His Son, the originator of the message, and then verbally conformed and bore witness by Jesus and His followers, they will not escape future judgment. They will receive a harsher punishment than those in the Old Testament. In our pluralistic society, It's not really right to say, I guess, that another person's teaching is wrong. But it is altogether foolish and deadly. If we know the true teaching, we must communicate it. And if the true teaching reveals that their teaching is all wrong, then we must say it. The gospel is definable. It's no difficulty to find out what the Bible says about the gospel. What is the message of the gospel anyway? Well, it's really the message about the whole message of the Bible. The gospel starts with the creation of the world and of human beings. It includes preaching about the fall of man and why they need salvation. teaches about the practice of the priest in the Old Testament. Offering a lamb sacrifice morning and evening was only foreshadowing, looking forward to the great act of God in offering up Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who was delivered for His people and for their sins. All the Old Testament types and shadows was only a preparation for what was coming in the Savior, Jesus Christ. The gospel entails all the message of redemption, God buying us by his blood from the slave market of sin. It is a message of the effectual call of God and the purpose of God in salvation. But it is also a message of final judgment, is it not? There's a day when God has set with certainty that God will judge the world. All those who have not repented will receive God's justice. All those who have repented and trusted in the Son will receive mercy and will escape the wrath of God. And finally, in the gospel, there's the restoration of all things in Christ Jesus. It's going to wrap it all up. That's going to be a great day. So in the final analysis, you and I are not to pick and choose. We are not to take out what we like and reject what we don't like. We instead are to believe it. We're to receive it just as it is and by an act of faith in our weakness and our helplessness simply believe and then eternal life is given by God. That is the message of the gospel. But 
Where do we come to in Hebrews chapter 2? Look at verse number 3 again. Here's the question. Here is the warning question. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It is a question. Salvation here is the, the deliverance of man, of people, through the mediation of Jesus Christ. And it's, to be, it's expressed in a way to give, so we give it its highest importance. How will we run away? How will we escape if we don't pay attention to the fullness of this message? If God, now, through His Son, provided a greater salvation and you neglect His final revelation and means of salvation, how will you escape? What you will not escape from is the justice of God. Because if God did it that way in the Old Testament and he didn't fudge on it, he's not going to fudge on it if someone hasn't trusted Christ when they were given the message and they ignored it and laid it aside. You see, it's just a matter of not paying attention. You don't have to be hostile to the message. You can just be indifferent to the message. Right? Maybe you say, I'm just not feeling it. I don't feel the need for Jesus. I, I don't feel the, the, the threat of the justice of God in my life right now. I've never felt it. I'm just not interested in Christ. Please, don't let your feelings dictate to you this most important truth. But let God's word be the guide here. It is a matter of eternal importance. Well, here is where the exhortation and warning should claim our attention. If you neglect the only great means of salvation to escape God's wrath, well, then you'll have to stand alone to face God's justice. It's not a matter, well, it will not be a matter of, it won't be a matter then, of how can you escape. But the cold, firm reality will be there is no escape. There is no escape. You cannot escape God's justice. The only way to escape it is through who? Jesus Christ. God's final revelation to man. If you neglect him, you fudge on him, you ignore him, you're indifferent to him, you will stand and everyone else will stand before God's justice. And there will be no escape. That's the point. That's one point. If you get that, you've got it. 
If you get that, then you can look at your life right now and ask yourself, where do I stand before God? And if you don't know where you stand before God, then run to Jesus Christ, your only hope and Savior, and the final revelation of God on how you get saved. Amen? On the other hand, the Christian who is firm in their faith can stand and declare, I have been saved. My whole position has been changed from one of being unsaved to one of being saved, from one of being condemned to one of being freed from God's condemnation. In other words, I have moved from one place to another, from the place of not being a Christian to the place of becoming a real Christian who perseveres to the end because I know what I have. That's where you want to be. And if you are there in your mind and your heart and your convictions, nothing will move you. You understand that? You will not repudiate Christ. You will not ignore the message of Jesus Christ. You will persevere till the last day of your life when you close your eyes and you enter into glory. That's what the motivation of Hebrews is, to bring you to that place. And when you do, the possessions of life, the glitter and gold that's flashed before us won't mean very much because you can't take any of that. But I can die and close my eyes no matter what situation I am socially or uh, politically or any other way and enter glory because Christ saved me. Period. That's it. Amen? Please take this message serious. It is the most important. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. This morning, that you have done such a great thing. I pray that we would never think of our salvation as anything else but great. Mostly, Lord, because of who provided it. You are the great God and Savior. There's no one like you. You are the beginning and the end. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You are the creator of the universe. You are the one who has authority over angels who created them. You are the one who gave the law and did not fudge on it. You are the one who has given the final revelation of your son. And those who do not believe in you will come under your justice. I pray this morning, Lord, that you would save us from that, anyone who does not know you. And those who do know you, that we would bask in the seriousness of what it means to pay attention to the word of God so we don't drift away. Lord, help us to persevere in Christ for the great glory of your name. And I pray this in the precious and the glorious and the final name of Jesus Christ. Amen.